Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Hey, what's going on, everybody? Hope y'all are having a wonderful one out there. Today, I got a, well, you know what, before that, let's go ahead and say this. If this is your first time at I Believe Now What, uh, we are a podcast that is dedicated to just the upbringing, the uplifting, the edification, just building up of the church. We go over Bible topics. We go over Bible passages. We break them down in detail, bring them in context. We'll even go over different things that Christians may encounter in their day-to-day lives. We'll talk about different doctrines. We'll talk, man, we, we just go over everything. All right. If it has something to do with the Bible, it has something to do with Christianity, we try to cover those topics here. And I believe now what? So with that being said, let's get on to today's message. And that is going to be in Matthew chapter 22. We are going over the parable of the marriage feast. Now, I want to discuss this parable of the marriage feast that Jesus addressed in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and read. If you're driving, just just wait, look it up later. I don't want to know we're getting in an accident. Now, in this parable, when you read it and understand it at its most basic level, it can be very scary. But once you examine it and study it, you should come out with a good idea of whether or not you have been wearing the wedding garments that Jesus is talking about. Let's go ahead and read the passage and break it down so we can understand what it's talking about. Let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer first. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just the resources to make these episodes happen, Lord. And I pray that everything that comes out of my mouth is something that honors and glorifies you and it is true to what you were saying, Lord, in this message. Thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Starts like this. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves and called those who have been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went on their way. One to his own farm, another to his business and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in the wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, 
but few are chosen. Whew, man, that sounds scary, right? <laughs> let's go ahead and get into this. First off, let's take a look at the setting this parable was set in. This is the morning after Jesus's triumphant entry and the cleansing of the temple. That's where he flipped over all the money changers tables. Everybody knows that famous scene. And that night he spent it in Bethany and returned to the city the next day. Now, in these events, during these times, these few days here, there was a lot of foreshadow hap- uh, foreshadowing happening. One of which was just one chapter up in Matthew 21. And I'm going to go ahead and give you a little summary of it. This Jesus was returning to the city and he became hungry and he came across a fig tree. Now, this fig tree had leaves, but no figs. So Jesus cursed that tree and the tree withered. Now, some may read this and think, wow, okay, Jesus must have been really hungry just to curse a fig tree for not having any fruit. But as I said before, there is foreshadowing happening here. This tree was a representation of Israel, a living tree that bore no fruit. Jesus often talked about how those who are in God and abide in Christ will bear fruit. From this, the example of the fig tree and the parable that we're reading today, Jesus is establishing a fact that he mentions later in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. If you got your Bibles out, go ahead and turn with me there. Verse 37 reads like this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often have I wanted to gather your children together the way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, You will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what I'm about to say here, that's the end of the verses right there. Now, what I'm about to say here is is, is a, a debated topic. But to me, this is the very moment where Jesus shifts his focus from Israel to the rest of the world. Now, obviously, we know that this was always the plan of God. I'm not suggesting that, oh, God was hoping that something would happen that he wasn't taking account for. No, no, no. This was always in the plan. And you could reference that in multiple passages throughout the Old Testament, from the prophets, uh, especially on this matter. But the key words that Jesus says here, and pay attention to this, it makes it very clear to me. Your house is being left to you desolate, deserted, no more. Just a few days earlier, Jesus was calling the temple his father's house. But with this statement, this statement from Jesus is clear. God was no longer going to be in that temple. The blessing and the glory of God was being removed from Israel. When Christ left the temple in Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, God went with him. We're not going to go through and read it today, but a good parallel 
to this is Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 20 through, 22 through 25. If you want some further studying, please read that. It's a great compliment to this. I highly suggest, once again, write it down, study it. It's very amazing how the Old Testament is in perfect agreement with the New Testament. You know the old saying, in the old concealed, in the new revealed. Anyways, the reason I'm telling you all this and, and really emphasizing it is because with the proper context, in the proper context, this parable ends up making so much more sense. All right, now let us break down this parable and see who the key players are in this. So you got the background now. You understand the background, everything we just talked about. That's everything that's going on in this time. Everything going on with Israel, uh, Jesus saying this house is going to be desolate, the temple. It's going to make it all make so much more sense. Now let's go ahead and break this down verse by verse, okay? So go to verse 2. The king is obviously God. That's who the king is in this story. And the son that he's throwing the feast for is Jesus. Then in verse 3, it goes on to the servants. Who are the servants? Those are the Old Testament prophets. And the invited guests, that's Israel. Now, just to put it even more context, in these days, especially during these biblical times, these wedding feasts were a big deal. It's not like the weddings that we have here uh, today, especially here in America, they, you know, where it's a one-day ceremony, okay, done by. No, 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 no. This lasted a long time. And the very fact that the person throwing the wedding here is the king and he's inviting people, oh my gosh, you are going to show up. There is no way that you are going to miss this wedding feast. But obviously, that is not the case in this story. We see the first time the servants, the king sends the servants out, the invited guests just simply wouldn't come. Once again, the, the king sends them out again and he says, hey, tell them the food is ready. Everything's good to go. The feast is here. Let's enjoy it. But they still wouldn't come. And if you actually look at this same accountant, Luke, they go into more detail about the excuses that were given for not coming. And man, they were some poor excuses. And in verse 6, we, we, we even see to the point that they killed the servants. Honestly, what is that symbolic to? I believe that's symbolic to how Israel treated the Old Testament prophets. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go back in your Old Testament. Read uh, some of the different prophet books, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, books like that. And just see how they were treated. Not very good. They were like the person that rained down on your parade. Oh, here comes so-and-so again, saying what God wants us to do. Not fun stuff. You know, that's, that's how they were viewed. And they were chastised and abused and everything for that. And in verse 7, we see the king's anger for that. We see him get angry over the murder of his servants. So he executes judgment on those he invited. Now, that verse in verse 7, this is often foreshadowed or being told as a foreshadowing 
of the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go ahead and Google your history real quick. The 70 AD destruction was a huge event where Rome pretty much just flattened Israel to the ground. Remember when Jesus said, not one rock will remain about another for the temple? That, that's what happened in the 70 AD destruction. A lot of people view this verse as a foreshadowing of that, Jesus foreshadowing that. Now, as we get through verses 8 through 10, we see the king tell his servants, go out, invite as many people as you can, because those original people that I just destroyed over there, they're not worthy. In this passage, my opinion now is that the servants, kind of no longer the Old Testament prophets, but now are the apostles and the other disciples of Jesus. And honestly, not even that, you can pretty much say this might as well mean us too, Christians. Because our mission is the same as theirs, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. It's kind of like one of those deals where, oh, you you got invited and now you're part of the crew. All right, you got invited, you're good. Hey, go spread the word out to everybody else. Tell them to come. Come on, get everybody out here. Now this leads us on to verses 11 through 14. The wedding feast is going on. The halls are full, and the king spots a man with no wedding garment. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, like, okay, what's the big deal? You know, I got a wedding garment on, you know, maybe you can afford it, whatever the case may be. Well, the custom in these days was for the host to provide a wedding garment to the guests. So you didn't wear what you had, but especially this, this is the king here. The king would provide you the stuff that you're going to wear. Some people try to argue this. I don't know why, because we see it, you know, historically and we see it in the Bible. If you were not going to wear what the host provided, this would be a blatant disrespect. And to those people who, for some reason, don't think that is an accurate statement of the king providing the garments. Let's go ahead and just look in, in Genesis, where Pharaoh provided clothes to Joseph's brothers when they came into his presence. If you haven't read that story, by all means, go into that. It's an amazing story. But you see an example of it right there. You came into the king's presence wearing what the king told you to wear, clothed in what he wanted you to be clothed in. And you'll see why right here. Because the wedding garment is symbolic of Christ's righteousness. The righteousness that was imputed to us when we confessed Christ as Lord of our lives and believed in him. We can see an example of this throughout all the Bible of righteousness being something that we put on. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in Job, the epistles of Peter, the epistles of Paul. And honestly, the starkest foretelling of this, I really truly believe, can be found in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 8, where it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage. Oh, here we go here. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her. Here it is right here. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. There's no debating on that topic to me right there. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Plain and simple. Can't You can't really... 
get away from that too much. Now, this passage in Revelation, oh my gosh, my voice just cricked. Anyways, this passage in Revelation continues on and it talks about how we're going to come down with Christ in his army uh, for the glorious day of Christ's victory and an establishment of the millennial kingdom. Oh, I know a whole bunch of people out there probably went, oh, he said millennial kingdom. One of these days, uh, I'll talk about my views on eschatology and what I actually believe. It's honestly such a muddied topic for me that I still don't truly know what I believe and my mind changes on it frequently. It like flip-flops more than a pancake. I just, I read what I see in scriptures and I believe it. And that's where I get it from. I I don't like listening to too many other people on eschatology because honestly, so many people that I respect biblically have so many different views on this. You know, you figure if they're from the same... Uh, theology that they're all, you know, going to agree with you. No, no. Eschatology, if you don't know what eschatology is, it's pretty much the end of time stuff. You know, what's going to happen in the end. And honestly, it's one of the most disagreed topics in all the Bible because, well, one, it hasn't happened yet. And two, um, well, well, that's even up for debate to some people. Never mind. I don't want to uh, get sidetracked. I digress. We'll delve into that topic a little bit later, but let's get back to the point here. All right. So picking it back up, who is this man in verses 11 through 13, who was at the party, but did not put on the provided wedding garments? Or another way to say this based off what we just talked about, who was the person who came in, but did not put on the righteousness of Christ? This man in this story is every single person who claims to be a follower of Christ, but never actually followed. This person is the person who comes to church every Sunday, sits in the pew, maybe even in the front, and shouts, Amen! but never submitted to Christ as Lord of their life. This is the person who goes to all the events, gives all the offering money, maybe even attends Bible study, but has never truly accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. This, brothers and sisters, is the saddest person you will ever hear of. When an atheist dies and he comes face to face with his judgment, I'm pretty sure he or she knows exactly what's going to happen to them when they meet the Lord. But this person, this person we're talking about in verses 11 through 13, this person is about to receive the worst possible news anyone could ever get while thinking their entire life here on this earth that they were going to receive the best possible news. This is the very same person that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. The person that cries out, Lord, Lord, did I not do this in your name? And did I not do that in your name? And Jesus says to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. This person's eternity is set in darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To even utter that part of the verse and think about it, it just, it makes me uncomfortable. Just think of all that suffering that's going to be happening there. Now, 
as we get to the very last verse of this passage. Verse 14. This verse, oh man, has had many discussions over what it means. And to me, the answer is simple. I'm talking about the part where it says, Many are called, but few are chosen. The called in this verse refers to the world. Many are called. Who's called? The world. Proclaim to the world. No person is without excuse. The called is to the world. And actually, even a better word than called to sub in for it would be the invited. Because the Greek word that's actually used here, and pardon my mispronunciation if I don't pronounce it right, but it is kletoe, which literally translates into the English word invited. Now, called is used in the Bible different times in different places for different meanings, especially if you go up to Rome, uh, Romans. I said Romans. Wow. If you go up to Romans, called is used for a very different thing. Called is pretty much saying the saved, the people who believed in God. They are the called. But Matthew is using the word called in a different way. Jesus is using the word called in a different way here. And even the Greek word that is written down is different. I didn't want anybody to get confused when they see called in other places. It's good if you don't have one already. It's good to go ahead and grab yourself a Greek lexicon or a Strong's Concordance. So that way you can look up these words, these specific words, and do a word study uh, to verify what those Greek words mean and what those Greek words are and what they mean. Mixed up my words there once again, but yeah. Get a concordance, get a lexicon. You will not regret it. All right, so we now we know who the called are. That's the invited, all the invited guests. Many are invited, but few are chosen. What is chosen? The chosen are those who believe and made Christ their Lord and Savior of their lives. Plain and simple. The Greek word used for chosen here is eklektoi, which means elect. Once again, sorry for a bad mispronunciation uh, for all you Greek scholars out there. But that word means elect. Now, when you say the word elect, it for, I don't know why, for some people, raise into a big, giant fuss. I don't want people to do that. But by all means, study it for yourself. The doctrine of election is taught in the Bible. And if you don't know what the doctrine of election is, I have an episode, oh man, I don't know, called back. Uh, you just look up unconditional election and you'll, you'll hear what that is. And I'm not sure why it's such a debated topic because it is absolutely in the Bible and it is biblical. I mean, the word is used constantly. Many are called. Many are invited. The entire world is invited. But only a few are chosen. Don't get hung up on the chosen part. If you believe Jesus Christ died for our sins, went into the earth, rose again, and his sacrifice was accepted by God, that he is the Son of God, and that he is the only way to heaven, and that you are saved by faith through grace, not of works, so that nobody could ever boast about it, and you confess Christ as Lord of your life, then you are chosen. 
You are the chosen. No matter what you believe in, oh, does God choose us or do we choose God? You are chosen if you believe that. You truly believe that in your heart and you've confessed it out loud with your mouth. You are chosen. Now, the question that I want to leave you with is this. Are you wearing the righteousness of Christ? Are you wearing the wedding garment that Jesus is talking about in this parable? Are you putting on Christ? If you believe in him, then you are putting on Christ. If you do what he says because you want to, not because you feel like you have to, you are putting on Christ. Who is this person that went to the wedding hall thinking that they were going to go in but didn't put on Christ? These are the people that we need to reach out to. The people who think that they are saved but they got twisted into some crazy doctrine and are not actually saved. That's who this is talking about. And once again, the question I'm asking you is, are you wearing the righteousness of Christ? If you are, then please share this message with others. Spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Do it in your own words. It doesn't even have to be this episode. But if you are not, and you are willing to submit to Christ as your Lord and Savior, then please, I beg you, talk to somebody about it. Talk to me about it. Write me. Do anything. Do not be ashamed. We're going to go ahead and end it there. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. I'm all fired up. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for everything that you do. All the glory be to you, Lord. I pray for all of our brothers and sisters that they're just grown stronger through this, Lord, and they're empowered and bold and just go out there and preach your word, Lord. And I pray for all those who right now aren't wearing that wedding garment, but they think they are, Lord. I pray that you would just open their eyes so they can see and they can put on that righteousness that your son provided on that cross. Thank you for everything you do, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.